When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, my name is Gary Mansfield, and this is the Ministry of Arts podcast, where each week... I'll be speaking to a different artist. Now let's begin by bagging these bongos. Hello and welcome to episode 150. Yes, 150 of the Ministry of Arts podcast. It doesn't feel like 50 episodes when I, was, when I was sat here talking to myself. Which, if you're a new listener, I highly recommend you going to have a little listen. It was one of the best episodes, even if I do say so myself. Thank you to our Patreon listeners, to whom I must apologise. Because unfortunately, thanks to their support, I was able to outsource some of the jobs that sort of tie me down, you know. So a job I needed doing for quite a while was to have all of the 150 episodes uploaded to our Patreon page. Because pretty much every podcast listening platform only allows the last 100 episodes to be featured. So if you want to listen to any prior to episode 50, for instance, you can go over to the Patreon page and listen to them there for free but I was able to pay someone to do that for me. But unfortunately, although they uploaded over 100 episodes, each one should have had its notification muted, which didn't happen. So they ended up with over 100 emails telling them that they've got a new episode uploaded. The worst thing is they've paid for the inconvenience. So patrons, I do apologise. This week saw the opening of my favourite art happening of the year, and that is the Kersler exhibition at the Royal Festival Hall on the South Bank. This year was curated by Camille Walala and her sister, Sarah Isla Mayer. It's entitled The I and the We, and is as colourful and vibrant as you'd expect from Camille Walala. And I urge anyone who's in central London to go down to the exhibition. I'm sure it'll be one of the most powerful exhibitions you've visited. Definitely one of the most memorable. And if you are able to visit, there are some little forms I'd like you to take a couple. And what you can do is... 
When you come across an artwork that really does connect or stands out from the others, you can write your thoughts about that artwork and it goes directly back to the artist and it's a huge boost for morale. So that's the I and the We at the Royal Festival Hall on the South Bank until the 5th of December. Well, this week, like last, I'm speaking to a lady that has you captivated as soon as you start listening. She's a leading voice in performance and live arts and was fundamental to its huge rise over the last 20 years. She's a former director at the ICA and she's the co-founder and former director of LADA, the live art development agency, and a person with as much enthusiasm and drive within the art world as I've ever met. So please, come and join me as I spoke over Zoom to Lois Keedon. Lois, how would you explain what you do to somebody that doesn't know your work? Well, I think I'd explain it with great difficulty, Gary. Um, not because what I do is complicated or anything like that, but it's just I've sort of um, just left um, my job uh, at the organisation that I set up about 22 years ago and have yeah. been the sort of director of for the last 22 or so years. And I'm now in this sort of, you know, transitional uh, place and really thinking about uh, what I, you know, what I can usefully do and what I sort of want to do. So kind of qualifying that I'm not actually doing anything at the moment, but what if you'd asked me this question a couple of months ago, then I would have said that what I do is I try and support artists and audiences, uh, thinkers, researchers, students, anybody who's uh, interested in experimental contemporary art, I try and support them in that. So um, I ran the um, the uh, theatre the performance program at the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London for, for for quite a few years in the late 90s, and then at the end of the 90s, uh, myself and my colleague Catherine Ugwu we received funding from the Arts Council to set up a new organisation, particularly to support performance art or to support live art. Uh, and so what we did was we looked at what what does support for performance art? What does support for live art mean? What does it look like? What can we do? So what was really important for us is that we tried to create the conditions in which all kinds of experimental making thinking yeah. could happen. And that we looked at the different ways that that experimental thinking and making could sort of affect society really and change how people see the world through art. And did you see a definite change in live art once you'd started that art? Yeah, very much so. Not to do with us. I think we were just part of the, you know, part of the sort of the, the, the momentum that was yeah. really happening. But certainly when I sort of joined or sort of started working in this area of practice, sort of performance art, live art was very much seen as a kind of the weird shit, the marginal yeah, stuff wasn't yeah. taken seriously. And that's so in a way that's okay, because we don't want to be taken seriously by, you know, by mainstream, yeah, you course, know, by, by conservative culture. But you do want work to be um properly resourced and for artists to be valued, you know, yeah, in all yeah. in all kinds of ways. And there has really been a huge sort of shift in that understanding. I mean, to the point now where Tate, you know, Tate um modern in London opened uh, galleries specifically for yeah, performance yeah. art, you know. So there's been this huge shift. When I first started working, you know, artists who kind of came to, to this type of work from university or colleges, um, 
they were sort of tended to be rejects or refugees from what they were studying. And now it's taught all, all, taught all over the place. But that's not to suggest that, you know, you can only work in live art if you've been to university, far from it. What's really important about live art is that almost anybody can, you know, work in that. Um, it's a little, I mean, quite a few times we've sort of um, talked about live art as being very like sort of punk in a way. You know what I mean? If you've got the right attitude, if you can pick up a guitar and play three chords, then you can form a band. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a little bit like that with live art. There's not necessarily skills involved. It's a way of thinking about art and a way of about thinking about your role as an artist, really, and what you can do and how you can do it. Well, I've always found it quite intimidating, Lois, to be honest. I've tried to watch and be a part of it, and there's something that just doesn't connect with me. And I've I've, I've, I've genuinely tried so much, but I, I know that it's it's there for me because I was the same with film being used in art and I couldn't connect with that. And then at one point, watching a certain a triptych of film, it connected with me and then that unlocked the key. So exactly. I'm it's well aware that it's just me trying to find the right key yeah. Yeah. at the right moment, you know? Yeah. And I think that's really important, Gary, because I think there's lots of people out there who just, they think there's maybe some sort of rules they don't get, or, you know, it's a certain type of, you, you, you need to have that key to find your way in. But I, I've sort of always found that it was, um, it just took seeing the right, you know, the right work, yeah, really, definitely. the right artists doing the right things. I know you've you've um, interviewed Franco B, and I think for lots of people, Franco was, you know, a real way in. And I think there's other... Um, there's other artists, you know, particularly artists who are working with sort of humour, yeah, you know, yeah. and artists, lots of artists who are working around sort of political activism, environmental activism, where people can see the connection between, you know, certain types of sort of politics and certain types of activism and how art can can contribute to that yeah, as a strategy. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm really interested in the way the way that art helps us think not just how artists think but art can help us you know to kind of think think about think about the world so I think it is a matter of just sort of like and that was really what I saw my role and my job was is trying to find those keys you know what I mean trying to unpick those locks yeah, for people yeah. and trying to say there's lots of different ways in you know that way in didn't work for you let's try another way in you know um I think it's also partly because there wasn't um, any sort of, you know, kind of context for people to find their way in, you know, certainly in pre-internet days, how did people find out about this stuff? Didn't get listed in time no. out, you know, and all of that. So people felt it was this thing that wasn't for them. Um, but I think now because of the internet, which has enabled us all to sort of bypass the gatekeepers of culture, you know what I mean? The yeah, internet yeah. can, any, anybody can find anything on the internet in a way. Um, and I, I think that's helped. And I think more and more, um, uh, we like the live art development agency it was really important for me that we did lots of publishing that we published lots of books about artists or about ideas and things like that because you know because because that's seen as you know so so often sort of books are seen as the official you know the sort of stamp of approval this is serious yeah, of course, art. Of course. but with performance art you had to be dead to have a book published about you wow. before you know what I mean? so it was really important for me that we were getting stuff out about artists who are out there making work now so that yeah. people could read about it understand it think well i'm going to give it a whirl in in another in another way i mean 
it's not, you know, some some performance art is is not easy. You know, it's kind of really difficult ideas. I mean, difficult as in, oh my god, I don't want to think about that. Yes, yeah. Really strong images, you know, tough images. Well, performance um, or live art to me is like conceptual art for someone who isn't aware of conceptual art because yeah. I I would need context. Whereas, I mean, I can read conceptual art fine, but when it comes to performance live art. I do need context again because I'm I'm sort of um, I don't know what you, live art dyslexic if you like you know so I'm I'm not quite aware of it so I would need a bit of context first. When when we ran the program at the ICA, it was really important for us that we weren't like just booking the village hall, putting on shows. Yeah, we were trying to create that context, you know. So we did stuff around seasons or, or which was around ideas. So we weren't saying to people you know, um, we expect you to understand what performance art and come along and see it. We were saying to, to, to people, to the public, um, we're doing a season of work that's about this idea. And all these artists are working in different ways to explore that idea. And we know you as an audience are really interested in this idea. So trust us, you know, yeah. and we provide, you know, sort of information about the artists, about where the work was coming from, why they were thinking, how they come to that work and just hoped that, through providing enough, you know, context that people would not get it because that doesn't sound, you know, that sounds yeah. not right, but but appreciate it, I guess. No, yeah. I can say that. Yeah. How did you get into this field? I actually sort of through punk. Actually, I mean, um, I uh, when I uh, graduated from university, it was sort of just in the sort of uh, post punk era, nice. and so uh, I was up in Scotland. And there was just everybody was sort of forming bands and stuff. So I started managing bands and set up a little independent record label and all, and all of that. Oh, and then brilliant. I realised that actually the music industry was just horrible. You know what I mean? <laughs> it, it was, you know, that the wolves were there. We're going to eat everybody up. Yeah. So I, I just went to uh, volunteer in a local um, uh, sort of community art centre in Edinburgh called Theatre Workshop. And uh, we did really interesting um, sort of community performance projects, but sort of would bring in really quite radical experimental artists to work with communities and create these amazing sort of events. Yeah. Uh, and then one Edinburgh festival, uh, we were a venue in the Edinburgh Fringe and somebody brought up a sort of package of, um, of performance arts, about five or six different artists. And it was just sort of mind blowing to me. It was just a completely different way of thinking about how you make art really. And um, and all of the artists were just lovely, you know, really. It was just, and it was kind of, um, it was kind of like, oh, I found my circus that I want to run away with, really. And somebody Brilliant. who brought up that package, she just sort of liked my enthusiasm. So she created a job for me, really, which was brilliant. And that was it. Off I went. Um, so I've just, I've been so lucky. I've sort of, you know, because I don't really have any skills or anything at all. So I've just, <laughs> you know, I've just managed to uh, somehow uh, land on my feet and just been, uh, just had opportunities to work with amazing people, amazing artists. Well, you I, say I, you have no skills, but passion's a skill you can't learn, isn't it, you know? Exactly. And it's just that, you know, it's that sort of belief in it and wanting to make it, make it work. And um, I, I went to work at a place called the Midland Group in Nottingham, um, and that was really interesting. And then I came to London to work at the Institute of Contemporary Arts for, for, for a couple of years. And then I went to work at the Arts Council. I really did not want to work at the Arts Council. It's like, you know, I don't want to be institutionalized, but yeah. everybody 
sort of said to me, if I really cared about this area of work, then I had a sort of almost a duty of care. Um, You're in a position to make the change that you think should be yeah, there. Exactly. So I went to the Arts Council for a couple of years and I absolutely, you know, hated it. I cried on the way to work every morning and all that. And on the one day, I didn't cry on the way to work. I thought, oh my God, I'd be an institutionalized help. No. Um, but actually, having said all that, it was a brilliant experience because you got to see how things work. You got that national overview. I got to be able to, you know, set up new funds and make policy. Brilliant. And I was there at a time when they were doing um, a sort of uh, trying to develop new sort of cultural strategies for the UK. And um, so I was able to, I was sort of asked to write a sort of a strategy paper for live art. And that, you know, so I was, and the, so there was a couple of things. So I was able to write that strategy paper. But the other thing that's very timely now, Gary, was that when I was at the Arts Council, I, I previously been a, sort of on their advisory group. Yeah. We had commissioned, we'd, we'd been looking at the performance scene in the UK and saying, why is it so white? Uh, and so we commissioned some research into that. And so, one of the things that I um, was able to do at the Arts Council was to was to sort of enact that that research. It was a, a report by Michael McMillan called Cultural Grounding, and it was looking at sort of cultural diversity. Yeah. And it was sort of saying um, performance art, as it was referred to then, was very much a Eurocentric, you know, yeah. European North American tradition. But actually, if we expanded our understanding of the practice. And if we began to change our terminology, then it would open all kinds of doors for yeah. artists who hadn't been represented. And so that's been a really important thing for, for me and for live art. It's that it's been a when place. Was Sorry to but in when, when was that report roughly? Which year? In the early 90s, 91, 92. And so it's really been important for me and for lots of other people that live art has been this real space, safe space for underrepresented, marginalized artists, black artists queer artists, disabled artists, women artists. It's really been a very um, sort of exciting place for them to be able to sort of construct and perform yeah. who they are, yeah. you know? Well, the first two pieces of performance art that I'd experienced was in book form. You know, I mean, I'd, I'd only read about it um, because I, I don't know if you know my background, but I was in prison at the time. And it was- like um, In prison, Barry, you, you thought, Gary, you found those books? Uh, yes but I had them sent in to me. Right, okay, by, fine, by the one in the prison library. No, <laughs> it was, no, it was sparse, it was yeah. sparse. Um, but that, that's why I wrote to artists. I discovered art in prison, fell in love with conceptual art, and it was a conceptual artist that sent me in books and catalogues of their work. Mm -hmm. The likes of, you know, Sarah Lucas, Tracy Emin, Gavin Turk and, and the YBAs and etc. Franco B being one of them. Um, and it was Franco B who I'm talking about that, he sent me books and catalogues in of his work and I could only see it in photograph form but it, it was one of those I wish I'd been there you know but yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was a good second um second option was to, to see it in the book written so well by whomever wrote the text in the catalogue anyway yeah Franco and I've been really important to each other just yeah he's just he's just the most amazing man you know he's just you know I mean just his life story and everything about it and his work and his generosity he's, he's amazing um so I I did, did you also come across Ron Ron Athey only via um Franco yeah 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 because when it was when we were at the ICA actually and, and um same as you I first saw images of Ron's work it was a film actually a documentation of his work and it was kind of like 
I've waited my whole life for this. You know what I mean? I've been waiting for this. I've been yeah. waiting. I was yeah. hoping there might be something like this out there. And there, there he's there. And um, and then somebody else told me about Franco. I hadn't heard of Franco. And um, we were working with some artists at the ICA and Franco was helping them out. It was Tutu and Marissa Karneski and, uh, and they were doing stuff around um, uh, sort of women in the sex industry and pole dancing and yeah. all that. Franco yeah. was helping them out. And so... Franco and I got chatting and I said to Frank, I mean, there's stuff about this in Franco's film and in the books and all of that, but um, I said to Franco, oh, would you be interested in doing something in the ICA? And Franco was only working in clubs at that time. And he was like, I don't know. And it was the first time that anybody had said sort of no, you know what I mean? Yeah, to the ICA yeah. and it was like, wow. well, now I'm even more interested. <laughs> you know? um, yeah. So we went along yeah. and I tried to persuade him to come and do, it at the ICA, do something in the ICA and he said, and we agreed that he'd try it. And if it didn't work, he'd, you know, that'd be it. Then we both yeah. know it didn't work and all of that. And so we tried it and it worked. You know, he loved it because suddenly he was able to have much more control over his work than he did in clubs. Yeah. You know, um, and so we, and Franco and I've just worked really closely sort of ever since in, in, in every which way, really. Because for me, he's just such an important figure. Definitely. You know? Yeah so supportive of other people you know and it's just it's just brilliant well i i'd written to him and um corresponded with him several times while i was in jail and when i interviewed him for the podcast or rather when i met him for the podcast i was just blown away by how humble and friendly and supportive he is you know it, it was like sitting there with a bloody dalai lama you know he had that sort yeah, of yeah. um soothing um comfortable yeah. Um, aura about him you know yeah no totally and a background that breaks your heart I know I know exactly because we published his memoir with him a couple of years ago don't know if you have you seen that I haven't I'll send you um a pdf of it it's because it's out of print now and also I've left Lada so I can't send you a soldier but he's um because his life story is so amazing and he tried to he's tried to tell it and the number you made that stage show about yeah, yeah. trying to write it a few times and every time it hadn't really worked but he kept revisiting it and so we, we really need a bloody film producer to to yeah. do it i think yeah it does so we, we we did it and it was what was because you know how franco writes you know yeah. all of that. and it was just really important to sort of keep his voice but also at the same time but just to tell that story because it's just such an amazing story and it's a story of you know, I hate to say it, but it's a story of redemption through art. You yeah, know, definitely. You know, the art art saved him. Oh, without question. You know, it absolutely did, and I, and I think and it's he, he sort of pays back, doesn't he? Yeah, Every, exactly. Everything he does, it's to say thank you to yeah. to, to the art world for yeah. you know putting him on a new, yeah. giving him new direction. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, no, should. I mean, we're you know, I'm really lucky to have known. And to have the chance to work with artists like Franco and artists like Lois Weaver and Ron Athey and Guillermo Gomez Pena, people who've just, you know, they've been in it for the long haul. They're constantly trying out new things. It's not about the money. It's not yeah, about fame. Yeah. It's about, you know, it's about community in all kinds of different kind of ways, really. Yeah. Uh, and, and saying difficult things, you know, in, in ways that people can hear. Yeah. Well, I, I had an idea... Um, for an artwork years ago when I was in jail depression is rife rife in jails men aren't very good at speaking to each other and I was trying to sort of 
figure out a, a conceptual artwork to to deal with that I used to tell the guys to write a letter so I'd say like you know write what you want to say to your girlfriend your partner your mate or whomever next morning put it in the bin so you know the the proverb never judge a man till you walk a mile in his shoes I had done an open call to mainly artists because that's who I was following on Twitter at the time to send me a pair of old shoes oh, beautiful. and a problem that they've carried around beautiful. for years. So I would walk a mile in their shoes, no yeah. matter what they were, high heels, kiddie shoes, whatever. I'd walk a mile in their shoes and then I'd sit down and read their problem. And because you, for instance, haven't walked a mile in their shoes, you're not entitled to judge them. Only I am because I have and I'm not going to. It was all of that, you know, shifting of power and, you know, that sort of thing. I, I knew it was a beautiful thing that I was doing, felt like there was a lot of positivity to it. But in the end, the idea that I had of making these shoes into sculptures was irrelevant. It got to a point where I didn't even want to share it with anyone. So it was so personal between me and this anonymous person that I didn't want to show anyone the letter. I didn't want to show anyone the shoes or, or the sculpture I was going to make out of them. So it didn't really exist. It was like that tree falling in the forest, you know. It just felt such a beautiful and personal thing, you know. Gary, that sounds like a stunning project. And also just your telling of it, you've sort of basically done defined performance, yeah. aren't we? How, you know what I mean? In a way, oh, how it happened. Yeah, I was yeah. aware that it was performance. Yeah, yeah. But, but because there was no one there to see it, yeah, exactly. Performance, you know, yeah, is, or is exactly. it just me walking along in yeah. a pair of high heels around the council estate, trying yeah. not to be seen most of the time? What's beautiful about that as well is that you were saying about that you were going to make the sculpture of the shoes and stuff, and you realised actually that's not that's not the important stuff. Well, the important stuff is the process of doing the walking, exactly. and that's why performance art is important. It's not about the object; it's about the how you get to the object. The object was the proof that I'd the done object, it. The proof that you'd you know. done it, and actually, you didn't need the proof in a yeah. way. But also, that you know, I think one of the things about performance art is that. It doesn't have to be seen, you know, in a, in, a, in a way, it's wonderful if it's seen. But the fact that what was important for you was that, actually, I don't want to share this. This is too personal. Yeah. Uh, this is too intimate that I don't want to share it. So, in a way, you know, what would be brilliant would be for you to do something that was just writing about that project or yeah. talking about that project or, or, you know, something like that. And then that would almost be the work that came out of the work. Yeah. type of thing but because nobody saw it doesn't mean it's not performance art yeah well what yeah. I did do which sort of throws it all out of the window it was at a time when I was just I just started making art again I saw a guy on telly once who was advertising his book that he was just having come out uh, to do with empathy and I was like that's the word that connects a lot of stuff that I do is empathy so I contacted this guy and um, I told him about my project and he tweeted about it. And because a lot of people around him was sort of into empathy, as it were, I was getting a lot of traction off of it there. And it was it filled me with a lot of confidence. But then a few months later, there was a, a thing called the Empathy Museum. Yeah. And they was doing a similar project. And I thought, oh, bloody hell, it's typical. You know, there's me been working at this for like three years. And then someone else has a similar project. When I looked at their structure, right at the very top was this bloody guy I'd spoken to six months before, you know, and it, 
it really broke my heart that I told right. him about it and yeah. it hurt really to, yeah. to tell you the I, truth, Lois. Yeah, no, I bet it did, absolutely. Because, you know, one of the things, there's this um, sort of group in New York called the Gorilla Girls, do you know oh, that? yeah, brilliant, yeah, I yeah. do. Yeah, the Gorilla Girls are just brilliant, you know? And they did this fantastic thing, uh, 10 Reasons uh, Why It's Great To Be A Women Artist. And it was all of the, you know, don't worry, you won't be recognized till you're dead. And all yeah, of those kinds yeah, of things. Yeah, yeah. And one of them was, uh, it's great to see your ideas live on in the work of others. Brilliant, yeah. You know, and, and it's, I think that's one of the things, I mean, Empathy Museum, that was one called Claire Patey was, did that, it, didn't it she? It was, yeah. yeah. You know, there's so many artists I work with and they're just real, like you, you know, they're really kind of pioneering. They're doing, going out there, trying things. And then and um, and then they see other people doing sort of watered down versions of their ideas and stuff like that. And it really hurts. But I think it's one of those things that it's it's tough to be a pioneer. You yeah. know, one of the definitions about being a pioneer is you're, you know, you're doing stuff that nobody else has done before. And so often, you know, you see this, it happens all the time in performance, Gary, there's amazing artists doing really radical things. And then you see sort of wishy-washy, watered down versions yeah. of the same well, idea. I did speak to Claire and the Empathy Museum about did it. Did you? Did you? And, and I even become part of their version of it. I had a few emails and letters back afterwards, just to say the experience from the person that donated their shoes and time and letter. A couple of them said that it got them out of a rut that they was in at the moment so I knew that I'd helped at least two people yeah not go in the direction that they was contemplating yeah, going yeah. down at the time I figured well if I've done that to, to two people imagine how many people it might affect yeah you know going around the world so I didn't take it any further at, at that point and I've sort of regretted it in in some way you know but it, it must have helped people when they was doing it on a much larger scale, you know. But it's tough. It's just, yeah, it's, it's tough. It's, 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 it's horrible. And it, it does, you know, it does happen. Uh, it does happen a, a, a lot, you know, and I, yeah. And it's just, just really upsetting for so many people. And they don't know, you know, they don't know what to do about it and all of that. It's helping people. And it's, a, yeah. I mean, spreading empathy is, is never a bad thing anyway, is it? You know, no yeah. matter how it's done. You know, I'm but not... something it's beautiful. You you know, you're talking about the work that I'm saying the work. I mean, the the, the the what you were doing in 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 prison with getting people to come and have a conversation. You know, creating a space where people could have a conversation yeah. with you. And a lot of live art is about kind of creating those spaces of conversation. So there's lots of artists who do sort of you know one-on-one -on -one performance or just you know um, where it, you know creating very intimate spaces where people can sort of share all kinds all kinds of experiences. Yeah. There's a beautiful artist called Adrian Howells. Adrian did beautiful um, projects that are about just holding people or washing people's feet for them. Oh, yeah, I know that. Yeah, really stunning, beautiful, you know, but Adrian was very, you know, he was a very, you know, troubled soul. And, and you know, he, he killed himself uh, probably about five or six years ago, right. maybe, maybe a bit more really. And it's just, you know, it's heartbreaking because his work was so, much about other people and you know and creating being a sort of a, yeah. a open arms to hug and to hold people in all kinds of ways and the idea that he didn't felt held and hugged himself you know was just was heartbreaking and there's another artist called Joshua Safair I don't know if you've come across him no. but he might be somebody really interesting for you to to look at and talk to he's a wonderful artist um based in London but he does really brilliant um 
sort of, you know, participatory community projects, but really um, just, so, oh, it's just, I don't know where to, to, be, to begin with it, but he does a lot of naming projects. So he does, like when the London Olympics was happening, he worked with five of the five London Olympic boroughs and just um, invited people to nominate local heroes, oh, unsung local heroes, whose names would be planted in flowers in parks in the oh, five nice. Olympic boroughs. Yeah. Yeah. And then he did a project in St. Helens where they were renaming a local park and it was about which local person should it be named after. So really, you know, beautiful, really beautiful projects that are about people's lives, really. Brilliant. And another one he did just very quickly, it's just, um, he really likes opera. Um, and so he was looking at um, the idea that people would um, say what their problem was and he would identify the operatic aria that would solve that problem. <laughs> and an opera singer would come to your house and sing that aria yeah. to you, you know. Brilliant. But really fantastic, um, really, really beautiful, like renaming streets, but, but really sort of, you know, involving people in their lives, their communities, their environments, and, yeah. and making art around it as well. You mentioned at the start about um, comedy and humour being used a lot in, in live art. That's a very good stepping stone, I believe. In, isn't it? It's yeah. a real key, yeah. Because most people understand funny and yeah. funny can take you into a direction. You know, funny can lead you to, to heartbreak, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's such a, a powerful and yeah. an emotive thing anyway. But, Gary, um, another a brilliant person possibly for you to, to check out and maybe to talk with is an artist called Kim Noble. Yeah, and I know. Kim makes really, I mean, it, you know, it's hysterically funny at the same time. It's funny, but really, you know, troubling. And he does, he deals with all kinds of sort of difficult subject. And then a brilliant artist called Richard Dedemonici, who's all about sort of humour and kind of pranks, really, you know, public pranks. Yeah, like, yeah. again, go back to the Olympics, you know, Richard did a whole thing where he did an alternative Olympic torch rally, you know, <laughs> and it kept on being arrested and everybody thought it was the real torch coming through it, you know. He does all, you know, really. And we did a beautiful project, Richard, um, probably about 10 years, no, probably about 15 years ago, actually, where we worked with um, uh, an organisation that was working with sort of refugees and asylum seekers. And Richard created a boy band from, from young asylum seekers. And it was a fantastic, you know, really, he really wanted it to be the UK entry for Eurovision, you know. But it was a beautiful, I mean, Channel 4 made a terrible documentary about it called Fame Asylum, but... What Richard was really interested in sort of teenage pester power, you know, yeah, and to yeah. change attitudes to refugees and to asylum seekers through teenagers saying to the parents, actually, I want to go and see that band, you know. So I think people, you know, artists use humour as a really, um, as a really kind of great tool, I think. Definitely. You know, and I was even watching old French and Saunders the other night, and um, this could easily be performance art or live yeah. art. It really could because it's kind of uncomfortable. It's in a, in the best kind of way. It's funny, but it's you know it's not gags, you know, and it's really very kind of provocative, experimental stuff. And it's like you know somebody decided this could be on telly, and you know somebody else has decided. Yeah, well, it's only because it's or it depends what spotlight is pointing at it, doesn't it? Exactly. Who looks at it? so Kim Noble? When Kim used to work with um, uh, Stuart Silver, it was Noble and Silver. They went to the Edinburgh Festival one year and they thought 
we're going to describe ourselves as a comedy act. You know, they thought yeah. if we say we're a comedy, you know, rather than performance artists, and you just say you're a comedy act, and therefore people think you're funny. You know what I mean? And yeah, yeah. Simple well, it, it says you're allowed to laugh, doesn't it? Right. You know, yeah, exactly. and in an art environment, you would be yeah. hesitant to laugh. Yeah. I mean, I sort of tend to just sporadically laugh anyway when I find something humorous, you know, before Mum Wen tells me to to quieten <laughs> down a bit, you know, yeah. but then again, you know, that's the, the spontane yeah. spontaneity of humour, isn't it? You yeah, know? I mean, one of the first things that I saw was, you know, going back to when I was in Edinburgh and this 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 work came up to the Edinburgh Festival and it was an artist in that called Rose English. And um, it was so funny and it was like, oh my God, this is, you know, experimental art, but it's also funny. And then also she, you know, she said her biggest influence was Tommy Cooper. And it's like, oh man, this I was thinking Brilliant. of Tommy Cooper as we was talking. I went to see him when I was very young. Oh. My dad was working in a club. Tommy Cooper was there. He took me up. And it was the, the famous bit where he's backstage just talking as if he's locked in the um, locked in the dressing room, you know. And we was all laughing for 10 minutes before he even come out. And my mum was sitting there, straight-faced, couldn't understand what everyone was laughing at, you know. Yeah, yeah. And exactly, I mean, Tommy Cooper now, you know, I'd be saying performance artist before, you know, all those yeah. kind of people I'd be saying, he's one of ours, he's one of ours, you know. Um, and it was that, that, that kind of thing was, you know, so when Rose English said Tommy Cooper was an idol of hers, it was like, that was a revelation for me. It was, you know, one of those keys that unlocked everything for me. Again, if you don't look, the, look at them in your comedy eyes and look at them in your artistic eyes, then it's a, a different performance altogether. You know, and one of the things, that we say about you know performance art is it is the process that's what it is is the, yeah. you know is the, is the process it's it's from the uh from the idea to how that idea finds its way out into the in, in, into the world really um and it's the process is that that's the most interesting bit yeah. about it you know it's asking all of those questions and stuff well, when i was at the um venice biennale what was it 19 when it was last on the israeli entry if you like was a um, doctor's surgery and you have to go and get your ticket and then wait in, in the waiting room and, and watch a, watch the TV. And it was like an hour wait. So we thought we'd get the ticket and go off and have a look at a few of the others. And then we come back and we'd missed it by about six or seven um, numbers, you know. So we went in and said, oh, we've, we've missed it. And they said, well, sorry, you'll have to, have to take another ticket. I said, well, we're part of that. You know, if, if they're trying to reflect on life, we're the people that didn't pay this procedure enough respect you know we didn't sit there and watch the film we was too interested in doing other things too too selfish if you if you like so it's still a positive process what we've done by missing it you know we are we are as important as the people who went to see it you know we're just the opposite statistic you know I was still a part of that process by not being a part of it if yeah, you yeah. understand what I mean you know absolutely it was about you know it's all about experience and you had an experience not necessarily experience they wanted you to have but it was <laughs> yeah exactly, but exactly. It, yeah but it was the experience there was an artist called Jordan McKenzie and he did a whole project that was just about queuing Brilliant. Uh, and he did it when uh so he did British. it freeze one year you know when free freeze uh yeah. freeze art fair and he just queued for a ticket, got to the front of the queue, went to the back of the queue. Brilliant. Queued again, went to the front. They threw him out. <laughs> That's what the art world's like. Excellent. Taking up space for somebody who paid money. Excellent. But it was just, again, it was about 
that experience, not about necessarily seeing the work, but just about the experience of getting to the work, you know, yeah. which is what you had in what you had in Venice. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Was it always art at home growing up? Yes, but my not not art. I mean, actually, my mum was a, a painter, but uh, just an amateur painter. Um, but I grew up in Liverpool, I'm a scouser. I was going to ask where you grew up because you, yeah. you've mentioned several different places around yeah. the country and yeah. I did think that you might be a traveller of sorts. I'm a scouser. Where I'm from? A, uh, from Crosby. I grew up, I was born oh, in yeah. West Derby. My father was a, a doctor at Alder Hay. Grew up just by Alder Hay and then we moved to Crosby. Blundell yeah. Sands, actually, where the Gormleys are, where yeah. the Anthony Gormleys are on the nice. beach. And then went to university in Scotland, so that's why I ended up in Edinburgh. But um, but my parents both loved uh, particularly theatre. Um, yeah. so um, so things like the John Moore's exhibition, painting exhibition in Liverpool, and then the Everyman Theatre in Liverpool, which was a huge influence on me because it was a very um, it was very sort of experimental. You know, lots of audience participation. Yeah. Yeah, so for me being a kid being able to sort of shout out from the seat you know and being encouraged to do that was just brilliant but my mum was also a big um Shakespeare fan uh so she used to take me and my sister to see Shakespeare all the time which my sister loved and I hated <laughs> absolutely hated and I've always said about my my, my uh, with my mum there were three of us in this marriage you know like this out of me yeah, my yeah, mum and yeah. Shakespeare um, <laughs> I always hated Shakespeare but I loved uh, but the Everyman Theatre was this idea that you could be part of it yeah excellent um, I do like to see an artwork where the audience is part of the experience yeah and I'd like to make more artworks like that you know yeah and I think that again is what happens with you know live art performance art it's very collaborative between artists, between producers and artists, and yeah. between artists and, and audiences as, as well. And, and, and the liveness of performance comes from the artist, but also comes from the audience, you know? Yeah. And a lot, with so much where artists like Joshua Fair and people like that, for them, their, their role as an artist is to sort of like, sort of orchestrate the public, you know, yeah. or activate events. They don't perform, yeah, but they definitely. make things happen. For, for, for other people really that they're part you know experiences and processes that people are part of and and feel a sort of ownership of you know because there's so many community projects and participatory projects that for me are really problematic you yeah. know really really problematic and you know lots of sort of big museums and galleries do community projects as a way of sort of including excluded communities yeah, yeah. But actually for me it just sort of perpetuates exclusion in a way um, because they're not, you know, people aren't necessarily paid to be part of it. Yeah, they're not yeah. acknowledged. They're not, they're not seen as collaborators. You know, yeah, they're seen yeah. as sort of people that need, you know, kind of, you know, patronising attention, really. No, but you know, it's all part of the game. You know. Yeah, yeah, and so there's, there's, so I think you know sometimes, you know, community projects can be very difficult. You know, yeah. uh, uh, but the more interesting ones like Joshua's Affair and people like that are kind of really creating spaces where people do have their own ownership. Yeah. You no, know, yeah. and are acknowledged uh, as the as the kind of co-makers of the work, really. Yeah. yeah. And not seen as sort of people that need... I've always wanted to do a project, Gary, where that same type of sort of attitude is applied to the really rich. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you go up to sort of bishop, you know, millionaire's row and it's kind of... What's your problem? You know, <laughs> yeah. you know like, how can we make an artwork about your, you know, 
yeah, I just really sort of turned the tables on, yeah, on, on all the kind of I mean, I love including people in projects that aren't that that don't really have much of an interest in art or don't realise that they do. I really find something really warming about that because it was that that changed my life, you know. No, absolutely. This thing, I just we we did um, a project once with uh, it was a series of talks. Franco was one of the artists actually between artists and scientists. We did it at the old yeah. um, operating theatre at St Thomas's, which is that beautiful. Yeah, I remember you know, this fire risk. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, so Franco was part of it, Stellark was part of it, and Marina Abramovich was, was wow. part of it. And we had Marina talking with the um, Susan Greenfield, who was a sort of, she's a neuroscientist. And she, I think she became sort of, you know, sort of like one of the people, kind of public understanding of sciences and all of that. But I remember saying, you know, asking her, why can I remember all of the words to all of the songs I heard when I was a kid, but I can't remember, you know, really important facts yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. Anyway, she couldn't answer it. <laughs> but it was also really interesting because, because it was one of those differences between science and art as well, because Marina Abramovich was talking about her work and talking about all these things that she'd sort of experienced in her head or in her body in the yeah. work. And um, the scientists were saying, well, that didn't happen. And Marina was saying, well, it, it did. And she was saying, no, it didn't, because science hasn't got a name for it. Science can't say that happens. And wow. therefore, therefore, it didn't happen. It's like, OK, yeah. Oh, see, yeah, see, that's the difference. Well, that's where science is different from so many other things that are aesthetic. It's yeah, all yeah. black and white, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this or it's that and stuff like, and stuff like that. But um, but yeah, no, it's a, a, yeah, what the what the mind does and what the mind remembers and, and um. And just all those things about sort of body memory as well, isn't yeah. it? You just suddenly that, you know, it's like the, the, the um, Proust stuff, you know, the thing about the smell, the particular smell of yeah. Madeleine cakes and how that just evokes your whole childhood, really. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, you can hear a song and then you can hear a note from a song, can't you? And it's just everything. And then you're back there at that moment. Yeah. I, had it, I had it just the other day. Which piece of artwork that you've been involved in or promoted, do you think, has got the strongest emotional connection? I don't know. There's so many, but I'll, I'll probably I'll probably go with the Franco. Actually, um, various people have sort of written about you know Frank Franco Franco's work and stuff. But there's something about um, that they've sort of said that it's about this. It's that thing. It's almost like oh, you know, you can't put it into words. So you can sort of articulate. You can talk about it intellectually. Yeah. You know, um, you know, you can talk about it all kinds of ways, but there's certain, there's a certain sort of impact the work has that you just can't put into words. It's an absolute sort of emotional gut, visceral response yeah. sort of to it, really. Uh, and you just see people just standing in floods of tears, just what you know, just watching Franco because there's something so vulnerable about him, or it's triggering all kinds of memories for them, or they're thinking about life and death and all of those things and it's just something just a very very simple image of a man standing there sort of abject alone and bleeding yeah. is such a sort of such a profound sort of image that it does something to you that you can't put into words and that's what the best art does I think really well you summed it up there really it's it's that vulnerability that draws the empathy out from inside us isn't it totally and I think you know that thing with like we <laughs> When we work with Frank, when Franco 
did you know bleeding bleeding work so he had to sort of stop doing the bleeding work just because of its you know toll on his body and all of that but when he was doing the bleeding work there was all that that thing that we had to brief everybody who was working on the show what you know who what what was going to happen and all of that what we had to sort of look out for and what you had to sort of say was because so many people just wanted to come up and hug Franco yeah you know we had to say we can't let that happen you know because one is you know going to destroy the performance but all you know and all of that but but people just want to, to hug him. You know, some people want him to stop, but it's like, no, he knows what he's doing. He knows yeah. his body. You know, he knows his body better than well, he It's sort of as if the audience are breaking that fourth wall, isn't it? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And, and it's no longer become a piece of art. It's become reality. Yeah, it's become and, an experience that we're all Yeah, because that, that's the one that I saw in the catalogue was when he had the catwalk, more, more or less a catwalk. You know? Yeah, it was a catwalk. It was a catwalk, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and it, yeah. It was, and we did that in Tate, and it was because um, we did this uh, this sort of four day event at Tate in two thousand and three called Live yeah. Culture. We were commissioned by the Arts Council to do something that was sort of like sort of raise the profile of live art in the visual art world. Yeah. And Tate had just opened, and you know, so we started a conversation with Tate, and they, Tate were interested in looking at what they could do. You know, what kind of what art they could present yeah. what kind of audiences so they were interested in doing the event you know for the same reasons as us we did this four-day event and it opened and closed with um solo performances in turbine hall uh, and it yeah. closed with franco's um catwalk piece i miss you you could hear a pin drop you know and we were in that gallery and uh the biggest gallery in the world you know and just this just this one guy just filled it with his presence Excellent. you know it was just amazing. Um, and my family were there. My, um, my niece, and niece and nephew were really little at the time and it was a really profound experience for them. Um, um, but the weird thing is Gary, <clears throat> my, I work with so many artists who work with their blood, like Franco, Ron Athey, Kira O'Reilly. I don't know if you come across no. her work. She did, uh, again, one of those moments kind of like, oh, I've been waiting on my whole life. She'd put leeches on her back. Wow. And the leeches drew blood, so blood just getting fatter and fatter down her back. Yeah, beautiful, stunning work. So all these artists sort of working with their blood, and the irony is, my sister's a hematologist. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. So she was looking at Franco's performance. She was like, "Do you know what I could have done with that blood? Do you know what I mean? How many lives I could have saved? Yeah. Because he's a gay man, so you couldn't have blood anyway. But um, yeah. but you've got a very different relationship to blood. <laughs> Brilliant. If you could put on a performance or a venue of five artists what five artists do you think you'd like to make a an oh, evening or, or a week of that's an impossible thing in fact actually i can't answer that now but i am going to think about it gary and who those five artists would be i mean franco of course would be be one um you know ugh, i couldn't i couldn't narrow it down to five it would be impossible for me to impossible for me to to, to do that that's fair enough Am I the first to fail that question? No, that? no, you're not. I'm not a few. No. Yeah. I mean, I certainly, I want to certainly want to do a mix of um, age ranges as well. You know, I'd want to include artists who've been working for many, many years and that were a huge influence, possibly not as recognised as they might be. But I'd also want to have sort of young up and coming artists in the mix as well. Yeah. For, for, for me, you know, again, sort of like black artists, queer artists, disabled artists, women artists and stuff like that. For me, that that's, where 
the most kind of urgent, but also a lot of the most sort of exciting work is really, you know, that's really sort of, um, that's really kind of asking interesting questions about who we are and, you know, and, and um, just kind of different ways of being in the world, really. And yeah. for me, live art so much is about, about difference, really, about different ways of making art, different ways of being in the and world. Different, yeah, different approaches. Yeah. I mean, different I work, I don't know if you know of the Kersler Trust. Yeah, the prison. Yeah, yeah. so... Yeah. I'm on I'm on the board of that and I've been such a fan of that charity for years and years and probably because I've walked the same path as everyone who's taken part in it but when I go to their exhibition you know you can almost feel the energy yeah yeah into that gallery it's I tell every artist every year to to just pop along and just feel the energy there you know yeah. Some friends of mine in, in Liverpool, they're, they're, they're great actually going, I'd love to connect with you. And they call themselves the Institute for the Art and Practice of Dissent at Home. They're both artists and very much involved in sort of like uh, climate activism and anti-capitalist activism and all of that. And so they set up this thing at home, them and their three kids, they're now four kids, and they <laughs> all of their income uh, a fifth of all of their income went to the institute so a fifth wow. of their salary a fifth yeah, of their yeah, yeah, you know yeah. child benefit and all of that so it's a real sort of family unit and they really started when Liverpool was capital of culture and they thought it called it capital of uh, capitalism <laughs> oh, capital of capitalism yeah. and so they set up a sort of free university in Liverpool and stuff like that um Brilliant. and they're really they're really fantastic but Gary from Gary in fact He's um, just set up a thing with his new partner called Professors in Prisons, and they're working with Walton Jail. Excellent. And, and it's called uh, what, sorry? Professors in Prisons. So they're inviting sort of particular academics and thinkers they work with, not so much artists, to give uh, talks with the prisoners around art and ideas and stuff. Brilliant. So I'd love to do an introduction. Oh, perfect. It's perfect yeah. for me. Yeah, yeah. We, we did a project a few years ago uh, working with some various kind of like just brilliant um, academics that we, you know, collaborate closely with and curators as well. Um, but Adrian Heathfield, who's just a brilliant sort of thinker, he did a series of um, film conversations with different kind of philosophers. Yeah. And then uh, Ellen uh, Ciso and people like that. And they've just beautif beautifully filmed conversations about art and ideas, particularly performance. But one of the people I'd never heard of him before, a guy called Bernard Stiegler, do you know? No. Right, so he's a French philosopher, Bernard Stiegler. I think it's S-T-I-E-G-L-E-R. But Bernard Stiegler was a bank robber in France and he was sent down and he went sent down to a prison that had a fucking amazing library. Excellent. So he came out of, as a philosopher. And he's I've now met so many people like philosophers. that. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, they're not sort of world acclaimed, but I've met so many people who just had that little turnaround. Yep. And it's, it's what hurts me really is because I always say that prison did work for me because the sole intention of prison is to take you out of society, make you reflect on what you've done and possibly how you can better yourself. That did work for me and it's worked for so many people. And yeah, the amount of people that I've met and they've said, yeah, I've, I've done a bit of bird, you know, the first Turner Prize winner, Malcolm Morley. Really? I think he was doing two years or something, and, and he got into art while he was in there. And Amazing. How long ago did you leave Lada? Uh, I got my P45 last week. <laughs> but I, um, I, 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 I decided I was leaving last summer. 
yeah, just over a year ago. Uh, and it was in response to Black Lives Matter, really, um, and just in response to just, you know, how uh, white the cultural sector is, really. And it's just been paying lip service, and not, you know, not really doing the change and doing the work it needs to do. And yeah. I just sort of, you know, I would been I would have been leaving in a couple of years anyway for retirement and all of that. And Lud is always in a process of change and stuff like that. But it was just actually you know there needs to be profound changes in the cultural sector and some of those need to come from the top so i'm going to sort of step aside to make room for new you know new leadership young diverse black leadership and i've got to say i know many people have probably mentioned it but bloody hell man hats off to you for for thinking like that and yeah, it's, it's amazing. It, it I just really thought is. I just thought it was the only thing to it was the right thing to do, Gary. You know, it was absolutely the right thing to do. That it had to be done, and because um, the culture, so much about the cultural sector is, you know, trying to address issues of race and racial equity and all of that yeah. it happens through schemes and all of that, you know, and apprenticeships yeah. and all of that. But actually, that doesn't go to the top. Yeah, it filters. It filters yeah. out by the time it, or, or you know, exactly. fades away by the time it gets to the top. Yeah. There's no trickle up um, and there's never, there's not much trickle down either. Yeah. So I just thought somebody needs to make a move. I was, you know, so it's just bringing forward a process that would have been happening anyway. You know, I kept on looking over my shoulder to see who else was stepping aside. And, um, <clears throat> uh, anyway, but the cultural sector has gone through huge changes over the last year. But it was really important for me that I wasn't just saying, right, I'm going to leave and stepping out the door now. It was really important that I sort of led the organisation through a, sort of structural change so it was ready to hand over to new leadership and came up with a new leadership model so it wasn't under new management it was under new leadership you know yeah. their, their vision not my vision and all of those things so that that took a long time that took about a year to do but that that's what activism is all about if you know if one person taking the stance and showing a circle of other people what you've done and hopefully one or two do that and it, it filters down that way yes it's yeah. amazing. I gave a talk one time. I was employed as an inspirational talker on this um, thing at the NED for these people of finance departments of these. I, I don't even know what it was and I don't care what it was, but it was people with too much money, you know, come to listen to this poor person. You know, there was three of us there doing a doing a talk. The first was a guy who had a music producer who'd um, who'd visited Africa, seen that he could make a difference, and went back to start up these little remote studios for people to make music. The second was a lady that had started up this company that tries to put I don't want to say marginalised, but people of colour, disability, and whatnot into that upper echelons of the the city. You know, On, they wanted to employ her to come into the boardroom and, you know, and look at their pyramid system. When I went to give my talk last, I was like, why the fuck do you have to employ someone? You just look left, look right. If it's all middle-class white men, you know that you're not fucking doing something properly. I couldn't understand why they had to yeah. bring someone in. You know, I said, I, I said, I'm in a world where the gay, the, you know, the people of colour, the people who are different, the homeless, the anyone is fucking welcome and I couldn't quite get my head around it and you know I mean these people were just oozing with money and I am so glad I'm not part of their world you know totally. yeah totally I'd much you look rather be poor and have you know know the people that I know than oh absolutely absolutely and it's just yeah and that's you know really 
well, I'm sort of at, you know, at now because I don't, you know, you look at so much of how the sort of upper echelons of the art world runs and it's like, I just don't, I just don't want to be part of that really, yeah. you know, part of that where the basic things you need to do in society are seen as sort of schemes or projects or all of that. It's like, yeah, no, no, yeah. no, this is life, you know? Um, yeah, you just kind of, you know, you just look at who's sitting around sort of top tables and you just think, fuck. Jesus Christ. Well, what's next for you? I don't know. Nothing really. I don't, I don't know. I'm going to um, just, I think because the world's in so much sort of turmoil and flux, I don't (laughs) want to make any decisions about anything. Yeah. And just want to think about how I can sort of usefully contribute and what that is really and where I can go and volunteer and stuff, you know, stuff like that really. So, uh, so I don't really know. So I'm just sort of, yeah, taking a little sort of break from stuff and just going to decompress and see how the world sort of settles down and, um, and then what I can usefully do, you know, what I, where I can usefully sort of volunteer my services, really. But I don't have any plans at all. Yeah, but starting off with a blank canvas is yeah. a perfect way to go. I know and I kind of keep thinking god when I was a kid this is all I wanted to do it feels like I'm on this sort of like extended summer holiday I don't mean summer holiday as in yeah like no I know what you mean, extended I know what you mean. summer holiday you know yeah. late summer days yeah so it's difficult to decide anything in the middle of a pandemic really yeah. <laughs> yeah. well the, the position you're in I'm quite sure that it'd be one of those circumstances where all of a sudden you'll just bump into a subject yeah. and go oh I like this and right. yeah let's let's make it grow let's help it grow yeah 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 so i'm just sort of there for anybody you know you just uh, who i'm useful to really brilliant yeah right, well lois i think that's all my questions asked well gary it's such a pleasure to meet you i feel really honored to have been interviewed by you thank i've loved you it so much thank uh, you very much for your yeah. time uh, no, it's an absolute pleasure. And honestly, if there's anything I can do for you, just, you know, just, you know where I am, give me a shout. Oh, I'll give an introduction to, um, to the other Gary in Liverpool. Oh, if you could, I'd love it. Because yeah, he might get you to be, a, you know, a professor in prison. I'll, I'll be a professor for the day by all means. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, he said to me, would you be a professor? I'm not a professor. <laughs> I always say, Gary, I say, whenever I'm invited to give a talk in, you know, at university, I always say, I'm not an academic and I've got the qualifications to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Lois, thank you very much for your yeah. time. I've loved it. Brilliant. Lots I'll see you later on. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Excellent. There we have it. Lois Keaton. What a woman, right? I'm sure you were just like me, absolutely captivated from the get-go. And I can't remember whether it was Halo or Lisa Vandy that got me in touch with Lois Keaton, or it may even been a bit of both. Either way, thank you very much. Well, next week's guest is David Tovey who is a performance artist that I've known for quite some time. And he's very well known in both the homeless and the mental health arenas. And I'm sure he won't mind me saying, but you know them days when you're feeling a bit down and the world's against you? That's the day you should listen to David's story. Because Christ, man, the cards that this guy's been dealt with over the years will make you feel like the happiest person alive. And he's still got the resilience to stand up and be super positive. Well, that's next week. And until then, toodle pip. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Ministry of Arts podcast. If you're unable to support us on Patreon, leaving a review on whichever platform you listen to this podcast really does help us get noticed and anyone else looking for an art podcast, or even giving us a positive shout-out on your social media. Anything is appreciated. 
But either way, thanks for listening. And until next week, ta-da. on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.